Eric, thank you for telling us about the inner workings of Sunrise Movement. Uh, where and how, when did you get involved in Sunrise? Um, I got involved in late November of 2018. It was um, following the first Nancy Pelosi sit-in that came immediately after the midterm election, um, but right before the second one. And what got you involved? So at the time, we were doing like mass calls that were only like 200 people. And so I hopped on a mass call after seeing them on Twitter. And actually, um, yeah, somebody connected with me on there and convinced me to come to the second um, sit-in in D.C. It, it seems to me that that Sunrise has the most sophisticated, thoughtful, organizational structure. Do you, do you think that's overstated or, or do you agree with that? Yeah, so we are, we're a movement like grounded in momentum, organizing values and structure. And so I think certainly um, we marry like a, a decentralized movement with um, real like organized structures um, as do most momentum momentum movements. And so I think sometimes in contrast to like fully decentralized movements, like um, perhaps XR or um, like really Occupy is like the best example of a fully decentralized movement. We, we appear to have more of a structure because we really intentionally set that. For people who don't know about Momentum Institute training, tell us a little bit about their background and how Sunrise has utilized it. Yeah, so I cannot adequately tell you about how Momentum evolved, but I will say that we um, initially front-loaded with support from Momentum in 2016, um, and we are re-front-loading right now, so like re-evaluating our structure and story and strategy through their support once again um, with other, yeah, other Momentum-based uh, movements such as, um, I want to say, I'm like 90% sure if not now is another strong example, but I am not 100% sure of that. That, that. that which one is? is If not now is also like an example of a momentum-based oh. um, organization. Uh, what, what's, their, what's their purpose? I haven't heard of them. It, if not now is um, young Jews against the occupation. Um, so like really a strong part of the BDS movement. I don't. Uh, I don't know a ton about, if not now as well. Mm. Uh, I found enough Jews in Sunrise. <laughs> For people who don't know, that the, it's a boycott movement against Israeli occupation of Palestinian lands. And yes. uh, Trump and Secretary of State Pompeo are trying to outlaw it and, and say you can't boycott Israel. <laughs> yes, um, but... Yeah, we know that that is, that is not true and that you most certainly can and should. Right. I, they come up with very interesting twists of logic, like Trump says, I won the election and it was, Democrats was a fraud, no evidence, and a majority of his followers believe it. I, I do not get it. That is the right-wing propaganda machine working its best. But why, if there's no evidence, why do you think so many millions of people accept just because he says it? Is it yeah. our educational system? I mean, there's a flaw somewhere. You know, I'm reading this book um, called Power and 
powerlessness. Maybe it's like right here in my stack. No, I think it's in my room. But it's um, it's a history of like movement building and the lack of in Appalachia. And I think something really interesting that I was reading about the other night was like three dimensional power. And when we think of three-dimensional power, it's like all of our traditional notions of power taken one step further to the point where like, just speaking from personal experience, like power is so heavily ingrained that folks are unable to even see, um, see the flaws in the system or see that they are disempowered in the first place. Um, and I think that like, that is really an example of like, specifically thinking about my community, um, in Appalachia, like, who voted so heavily for Trump, right? It's, like, um, uh, I get really annoyed when people say, like, oh, they're voting against their best interests because that puts the onus on the individuals as opposed to a system that has warped their sense of what interest is and, like, who controls that and, like, their sense of power and agency has been completely taken. So I don't know if that answered your question, but I think, like, people are really seeking for any kind of power um, outside of the system right now, and Trump represented populism and, like, harnessed populism in a way that the left has, like, radically failed to, and, I mean, also harnessed white supremacy and, like, ingrained notions of superiority, but, yeah, I don't know. I have many amalgamous blob thoughts on that. Um, and you know what this makes me think of is Gandhi said we give at least our tacit consent to be ruled, and that to, like, change the colonial mindset and be able to overthrow the British, they have to change their permission. So the, yeah. we give consent on some level. Absolutely. And I know, I will say, thinking back to Sunrise Strategy, I have not read a ton of Gandhi and am working on remedying that. But I, I, I know that... Gandhi was a really integral part of initial conversations and thinking about consent and agency and empowerment. Mm. Um, and it's something that we're revisiting because there are continually lessons to learn from, yeah, mm. from him mm. and the as a whole. Um, so if, if you were doing like a Momentum Training Institute 101, what are some of the basic principles that they say, if you're going to be successful as a social movement, you need to think of blah, blah, and blah? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think one thing I think about a lot is, um, like, the way that we think about, like, playing the outside game, right? So if we think about changing dominant institutions, which is ultimately what Sunrise is trying to do, or trying to change dominant institutions and, like, stop climate change, and... Um, I think that there are like two fundamental ways that you change those institutions. It's like by playing the inside game, by lobbying, et cetera, et cetera, by being a part of that system. Maybe lobbying is even an outside game, actually, but like really being a, a full-blown part of that system and institution and being outside of it. And I think like when we think of being outside of it, there are like two kind of components and both of those are present in a momentum-based movement as opposed to choosing one end of the spectrum or another. And those two components are um, like structure-based organizing and mass protest. And so when we think of mass protest, we think of like Occupy Wall Street, of like fully decentralized movements. And we, and like labor unions are one of the best examples of like very, um, yeah, very like structure-based um, organizing. And I think momentum 
organizations successfully marry those two principles to differing degrees, of course, right? Like I would say in many ways, Sunrise is far more decentralized than they are structure-based um, or mass protest, excuse me, because there is a, there is the difference. Um, but yeah, marrying those two is like the number one thing that I think of. Um, yeah, I... That's like, I think that's like really the biggest distinction that I, in my mind. Okay. Um, so it, Sunrise was founded in June 2017 by 12 young people. And I think that, um, that Varshini Prakash, how do you say her name? Prakash? Varshini Prakash. Um, she had a history in, and, uh, trying to get rid of the, divesting from her University of Massachusetts uh, endowment funds, so she came out of the divestment movement. What what else propelled her and the 12 to um, organize a new organization that you know of? Yeah, so a lot of our leaders came out of, like, divestment movements and also, like, kind of the modern culture of the environmental movement. Um, but I think there were there were a few things. One was, like... It was very, very clear that to stop climate change at the timeline that we knew was necessary, it was going to take a kind of mobilization that other movements were simply failing to do, especially a mobilization of young people. Um, and there was also, there wasn't really a bold or progressive vision that any of, I think, environmentally focused movements for change had had put forth at the time right there was no intersectional vision of like what society could look like once we stopped climate change and so i think it was those two things were were really integral components i also think like looking at the gaps of the divestment movement looking to like the environmental justice movement um and all of these different movements i do think that there was also fundamentally a clear lack of like agency with young people and like they had not been mobilized in the ways that we knew would be necessary or could be powerful um, to yeah stop climate change and like to ring in this vision of a new world, um, of a new society. And so yeah, and I I think that there are other like subsequent distinctions. Um, we really intentionally created a culture of like storytelling and singing and thinking back to. Um, yeah, movements for change from the 20th century and even even um, further back. And so I think that, yeah, I think there were a number of, I think there are a number of distinctions that we consciously made, but I would say fundamentally at the beginning, it was the need for a movement that could actually stop climate change in the ways, um, in the ways and at the scale necessary. It, it looks like the really high turnout of young people, over half of eligible young people to vote, could vote, did so in the presidential elections, and that assured that we would have Biden, who at least is moderately interested in climate change, rather than Trump, who opposes any environmental. So what, what do you think worked to mobilize that youth vote and to get youth involved in, in the movement? For sure. You know, I think that... I think voting is one tool in the toolbox and um, youth certainly recognize that. And yeah, I think at the beginning, I will speak 
fundamentally from like personal experience that Biden as the candidate was really disempowering as a young person because he had previously been so clearly against progressive values and a vision um, and really felt steeped in the tradition of old uh, Democrats that like had gotten us into this mess in the first place. And so I think, I do think um, part of his openness and his responsiveness to progressive movements for change um, was an integral part of young people showing up, right? Like changing his climate plan from what was once an F as rated by Sunrise to a bold vision that is now, as he states, like a top priority, especially within the first 100 days. And like, we see him acting on it almost immediately, even within the transition team. And so I don't know that I have a definitive answer for this. I do think that grassroots movements for change were fundamental. I'm thinking about like the Frontline Coalition, um, which included the Working Families Party, folks who were working in Wisconsin and Michigan and Georgia and Pennsylvania to get out the vote and to really connect with young people and with historically under, um, yeah, historically underrepresented populations. And I also think even Sunrise, like phone banking for climate candidates that we cared about, like, oh my gosh, like Jamal Bowman um, or other folks throughout. So I think there were like myriad factors, um, but I would, I would fundamentally point to the work that grassroots movements did, despite being really disempowered by Biden's campaign early on in the primaries to throw down to support him. Um, I've heard a lot that the way to reach people is you have to have personal contact. You have to knock on the doors, call, I guess, mm -hmm. text. Um, what What's the psychological factor there? Why Why would you listen to me more? if I phone you than if I give you a fact sheet or something? I don't know that I can speak to the psychological factor, but I can certainly speak to the necessity of really connecting with folks. Um, I've been reading a little bit about labor union organizing and thinking about how, um, yeah, folks are getting, um, folks are connected to their communities and to Fox News and to their televisions far more than they're ever going to be connected with real organizers who care about them and who like want to actually fight for things that they care about and to bring them into our vision. And so I think that those moments that we have the chance to connect with people and to say, what do you want to change in your communities and how can we support the election of somebody who will change that? Or how can we support your um, community empowerment? is integral, right? And like, if we spend that time talking, like if we spend that time talking, much less reciting a fact sheet, then we're just working within a system that continually disempowers ordinary people to make change in their lives. And so I think that the times that I've been on the phone, like phone banking for folks like Charles Booker, and hearing these stories of, um, yeah, people who really were in huge medical debt from one one thing that went awry in their in their lives and were burdened with this for the rest of their existence, right? And like, this is why they needed Medicare for all. And they also needed a leader who they felt like cared that they needed Medicare for all. And if I was the envoy through which like 
to explain, yeah, Charles Booker is going to care for you as an individual and is going to enact Medicare for all, then it made a huge difference. Um, so I don't know if that if that answered your question per se, but I, I think that we don't give the average person enough credit for knowing what they need changed in their lives to make them better. And when we talk to them and when we articulate how that knowledge plays into our strategy, then it, yeah, we're, we're empowering people and we're getting folks elected. It makes sense to ask people what they need and want. Yeah. As a Kentuckian, why, why does Mitch McConnell keep getting elected when he's such an, uh, he obscures, he opposes any kind of forward movement, even COVID relief, and uh, instead appoints these conservative judges. I mean, that's not in the interests of Kentuckians, I think. Yeah, but I, I would ask Chuck Schumer, you know, why he, why the, why the, why the Senate majority supports candidates who Kentuckians very clearly don't care about um, to get elected the first time, and who have said, don't represent us. You know what I mean? I think that I think that Mitch McConnell wins because his challengers have have actually never connected with Kentuckians across the state mm-hmm. and have been supported by outside entities far more than the state. And that gets them through the primaries, but that's never going to win a seat. Um, and it's it's not going to hold a candle against a name that, that people know and that they trust even if they've been screwed by. Um, and so... I, yeah, I keep, that is a question that I keep asking myself as well. Um, but I unfortunately will have to blame the Democratic Party for that one. So Amy McGrath was, um, um, you know, it seemed like she'd be a fairly attractive fighter, fighter, ply, fighter pilot mom. It sounds kind of intriguing. Um, what, was, what was weak about her message or her supporters? Amy McGrath fundamentally did not care about Kentuckians. She did not engage with us. She didn't respond when we said, this is what's happening in our communities. Um, we need you to take a bold stance on things like healthcare um, and abortion and not go back and forth about whether you would have confirmed Brett Kavanaugh, right? Like what Kentuckians need is not a weak vision and a vision that sounds like, yeah, like the Democrats from 30 years ago who promised things that didn't deliver to communities across the state. What they need is like a real grassroots leader who has taken the time to invest, well, one, who fundamentally grew up in a, in a Kentucky community and understands what it means to be a Kentuckian and what values that is, but connects with other folks grounded in those values and like is willing to fight for for what for what people are telling him they need. And so I think yeah, I think that we I'll just say that the Booker campaign gained like ten, um, many tens of points right in polling right before the election day and I think that that was despite huge deficits in funding and outside support, right? Like we did not have $40 million to work with um, and squander. But yeah, it was a, it was a real grassroots campaign and movement that, and it, and the, the closeness of the race and the degree of support shows that that's the direction and the leader that Kentuckians need.
Um, the, the, the Sunrise said that um, the leadership team is supermajority women because we knew that women and queer people push for holistic intersectional solutions. Um, they're willing to admit fault, leave ego behind, bring jokes, laughter, and joy to the movement. Um, do you th think that there's like a danger of what I call the woman is wonderful school? Women are close to nature, to Mother Earth. But in fact, I don't know that they are any more morally superior or something like that to men. Or what's, what's your feeling about the women are best thing? <laughs> you know, I think that... You know, there, I'm thinking a lot of, um, I think it's like an Audre Lord quote that like white women are the weakest, are the weakest link in resistance because they have like the closest proximity, um, and desire to conform like that white women's resistance is grounded in a desire to, to hold the power of white men, not to like completely transform the system. I'm butchering the quote, but that is, I think that's the essence of it. And I think that Again, speaking as an individual, I think that we have in in the past years allowed, like, I yeah, I think like Democrats, um, maybe not maybe not the left, but like moderate Democrats have allowed women to be um, to be glorified simply because of of their um, gender identification. Right, like when we see, oh, like, yeah, like sometimes I see on Twitter posts about how like female leaders are like the ones are the are the countries that are like doing better in X Y Z, and it, it's solely attributed to the gender um, of their of their leader, and I think I think that that fails to recognize the nuance that like female leaders can be colonists and imperialists and really like perpetuate harm to the same degree that men have. Um, and yeah, so I think that I, all of that going back to the quote, I think that Sunrise has a number of really strong, powerful women in charge. Um, but I don't think that being a woman or even being queer makes up for other privileges that you might hold or ways that you are bringing your racial or class identity to the table and perhaps perpetuating other harms. So I think when I think about like justice and equity and anti-oppression, it means like we're having BIPOC voices lead the movement. We're having working class and poor identifying folks lead the movement. Um, we are having queer folks lead the mo movement, but we're, yeah, we're also having gender non-conforming or non-binary folks who are leading the mo movement and folks of different um, neurological abilities who are not neurotypical or who might not be um, physically able in the ways that society thinks. I think all of those things are integral and having leaders from all of, yeah, who hold all of those marginalized identities leading the movement is integral, not just having women. Um, yeah, especially if they're white owning class women. Does I that really think um, that the majority of white women voted for Trump, even in this election. Yeah, I think so. I think that, I think white women are not... White women are voting for their interests as as white people often and as people with a lot of privilege, um, just as much as white men are. Yeah, but, but Farshini says that we knew that women and queer people push for holistic intersectional solutions. Is that because of there's something innate about their 
their DNA or is it because they're outsiders and they have a reason to push for change? I think that I don't think it's anything innate. I think like fundamentally women and queer people have been oppressed in society. But I think that what would that um, maybe initial quote failed to recognize was the degrees of oppression that women and queer folks have experienced. And um, yeah, and, and that it's not enough to just have women and queer folks that we need to, to think about the intersections of identity and like really, really um, promote folks uh, who've been historically disenfranchised into leadership. It, it, it is true that a multitude of studies show that women politicians tend to get more done and do more for their districts. They, they tend to be more, more caring. So I, I've seen a million studies like that. And it's true that New Zealand and Germany having women leaders probably made a difference in their reaction to COVID and terrorism and all that stuff. So Yeah, but we have to ask if those are like a result of, you know, like gender gender stereotypes and it's, you know, care work has historically been placed upon women. So it would make sense that they're fundamentally more caring when they've been asked to do care work for no money and no expectation for hundreds of years. So, For millennia, forever. Yeah. Um, all right. So the I'm, I'm interested in some of the specific tactics, like Sunrise did a tour of 15 cities in 2019. Uh, we when it, were they doing trainings? Were they doing pep, get peppy rallies, or what was what was the focus of uh, like if Sunrise goes to a new city? Yeah, so I think that originally in 2019 we had thought that um, perhaps doing like a Green New Deal tour would be a really effective way with connecting with communities, um, and so that was one thing that we employed. You know, I think like. I think our tactics have been evolving as, as we have evolved, right? We've learned how to best support hubs and are at n by no means perfect in doing so, um, but we are continually learning how to best do that. And yeah, so I think that like, I think tactics look different at a national and local level. Like I can start with our hubs, our hubs engage um, in many ways, primarily through direct action, but also like are really like building coalitions with, um, you know, partners on the ground and some are pushing for a local Green New Deal and doing so through direct action, but also perhaps through legislative means. Um, hubs are doing like wide awakes, they're supporting a climate mandate, they're doing sit-ins, whatever it might be, right? Like they're hubs are working autonomously in their communities in the ways and tactics that make the most sense to like further um, the Green New Deal and like a progressive vision or um, not, maybe not a progressive vision, but like a, a vision of climate justice in their communities. Um, and nationally, I think that the, the tactics are constantly res uh, responding to that. Um, and responding to the, to that in the moment, right? Like this year, we were far more electorally focused than perhaps we have been in years past doing phone banking and get out the vote work. Um, but the year before, we or two years, um, we were pushing back, right, against Nancy Pelosi by way of sit-ins um, and like really uh, making climate change and specifically the Green New Deal a top priority um, for this year's election. So I think that, yeah, I think 
I don't actually think that we have one like niche or tactic that we really employ constantly. I do think we evolve and change as the moment demands and also as we learn about the movement. Um, you mentioned wide awakes. Is that where people make noise, bang drums in front of a recalcitrant politician like McConnell, or they did it in my area to really conservative rice growing member of yeah, Congress? Yeah, that is exactly what I mean. And that was actually grounded in practices from the abolitionist movement of the 19th century. Um, and so that was something that we, yeah, that we have done. What are, what are other tactics that have been drawn from history? I know that people a lot of time mention the Children's March and the Selma, Alabama, and the Civil Rights Movement. What, what are other kind of inspirations from studying the past? Oh, my gosh. Um, I think there are so many. I think that um, often when I'm training um, and I think about the civil rights movement or Standing Rock or um, other indigenous resistance movements, um, I always lead by saying that like we recognize that we stand on the shoulders of giants but are in no way trying to compare ourselves to them or co-opt their techniques. Um, so yeah, I think a lot about drawing from the power and the organization of like the lunch counter synods, right, and, and the coordination and and the intention behind them, the way that they like, yeah, were like prefiguratively showcasing the world that they wanted to see. And I, but very clearly, we don't have like a point of intervention that is the same as a lunch counter. You know what I mean? Like, there is no way to replicate exactly the lunch counter for the climate change um, or for the climate movement. Um, and so we think about what the lunch counter symbolized and like the degree of dignity that, um, and, and risk and sacrifice and, and yeah, just like what that action meant and what the strategy behind it and like have, have taken lessons from that and adapted them to present day sit-ins, um, or strikes or whatever it might be. Um, so I think wide awakes are like a very clear example of a tactic that in history that worked right now. And in this like current moment, the whirlwind but I don't or we're actually not in a moment of the whirlwind um all of the all of the movement theory folks would come after me for that one but in this current moment um it was a slip of the tongue um but I, I don't actually know if I can point to like other very specific actions that are grounded in in it in the same way maybe being willing to go to jail to make a statement that yeah absolutely um the the First Nation people and um, Gandhi's liberation movement were are very focused on what Gandhi called soul force. Indigenous people use prayer and uh, you know ritual and call on ancestors and are respectful to their elders and use the ceremony of the fire and that kind of thing. I wonder if if any of that kind of soul force approach has been adapted. Yeah, I think that Sunrise um, has really intentionally tried to craft a culture through singing um, and through storytelling, I think, are the two things that come to mind. Um, unlike um, SNCC, we don't, like, start every single meeting with a song. Um, uh, that is a discipline that I think none of us have, but we certainly incorporate song 
into all of our actions, both to like bring joy and to bring like solidarity, most importantly, and to like bring in a vision. Um, and I also think like, I think storytelling is, is not obviously not a practice that we came up with, but I think a lot about the way that storytelling, specifically like Marshall Gans and like public narrative and um, the farmer workers movement, um, we're able to connect with each other and with the broader public through storytelling and yeah, again, like build that solidarity. So I think that those are like two things that, that come front of mind and I don't know if they're, if they're perhaps like soul searching um, within the movement, but there's certainly ways that we've built community and solidarity. So what's an example of a story that you tell people as living in Appalachia? Um, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, um, I think I've been, th yeah, I think we tell stories at different times, right? So there are times that I talk about what it, what it meant to grow up in Appalachia when I, when I think about like how I grew to understand the importance of the Green New Deal, right? It was like by living here and by seeing the exploitation um, and by thinking about like specific moments in my life that I understood that. Um, and I have like really yet to hone in on, on how that story should be told. But I also think that there are times that are, that are really low stakes that I tell stories about um, moments when it was integral to be supported by a team. Right. And like, what does it mean to build really strong team culture and community to me? And like thinking about random disparate experiences in my life that have meant a lot and that show that importance. So I think that I think sometimes we think storytelling has to be like really high stakes. And it's always like I survived a natural disaster and that's why I'm fighting for climate justice. But it's absolutely not. Um, and it's about the everyday moments and interactions that we find important and valuable. In terms of team building, which as you say is really crucial, um, in doing the interviews with people for the Climate Girls Changing Our World book, drama came up a lot. And that's like, this faction wants more power than this faction, or this person's getting more media attention than this person, or this person wants to hog the decision-making. So, the, you know, primates do that kind of dominance, hierarchy, coalition building. It's, it's part of our chimpanzee bonobo background. I think it must be integral to being primates. But I wonder what you see about issues like that and how to uh, address them. Because it's going to be inevitable, probably. Yeah, I mean, I think building teams is, is really tough, and something that I've actually been doing through Sunrise um, is, like, doing a transformative justice cohort, um, which I don't know if you're if you're super familiar with, but is um, it's the ways that we – I'm not going to do a, a great definition right now. Actually, maybe I have one right here, but it's, like, it's the ways that we as individuals operate through, like, a long-term and generational understanding of violence and like mitigate harm outside of carceral structures and systems, but also, yeah, like how, how we mitigate harm in our, in our own everyday interactions. Um, and it's a, it's a framework to do so, um, and to handle conflict well through our community mechanisms. Um, and I think that, um, I think that, that 
in many like social movements or in progressive spaces, we like to think that like we can avoid harm or we can like create a culture that is like so sound that there's never going to be conflict. And conflict is like phenomenal. Lean into conflict. I'm trying to like, it's not my personality type, but conflict is integral. But, um, but I do think that harm is also inevitable when you're bringing together, especially a multiracial cross-class movement. And what is important is like, and I, I've, I don't think that Sunrise is there yet and, and many movements aren't there yet, but like figuring out the structures that we can have in place to mitigate, um, to mitigate that harm and to really reconcile it in the ways that are necessary and, and to learn from it and to create values and more structures that will respond to it in the future. So, What's an um, example of, what do you mean by structure? Yeah. Um, Can you give an example of, of some kind of conflict that's occurred and how a structure was designed to harmonize or resolve the conflict? Yeah. I think a lot. Um, I once worked on a team that was like both volunteer, I was one of the volunteers, and like staff-focused, and there was a lot of conflict um, yeah, there was a lot of conflict around like class and class background while on that team. And, um, I remember very clearly, uh, like moments in which like individuals of more class privilege were like really not conscious of the impact that like asking people, um, to, for example, for, um, to say like, oh, you can just pay for your travel. Like we need you to come back and like without an understanding that that was, that was not a possibility. And that that's, that's not an, an extreme example, but right, like prolonged lack of, um, of recognition of the impact of class on a team can really, can really make an, a difference. And so I think that the way that that was mediated um, was through uh, like kind of a transformative justice space um, in which that harm was like really openly discussed with the facilitator um, and then like pr processed to the degree that it could be and apologies were made to the degree that they needed to be or that the victims would accept them to be or asked for them to be. And then we created like, yeah, ways to move forward um, that were grounded in like, yeah, principles and values that would, that would both, um, that, that would not obviously like mean there would be no harm in the future, but made all parties cognizant of the way in which harm had occurred and like how to avoid it in the future or like ways to mitigate it and and to confront it head on. Um, so that's like a very small, I think, example. But I think that I, especially on a team or especially in a, in a movement that is constantly working between staff and volunteer, harm is inevitable because of the way that power interacts and the way that, yeah, just like humans interact, um, especially when we're, you're working under a timeline of like stopping climate change or when you think that the, that mission is like, yeah, of the utmost importance. And so having, I don't, yeah, again, I don't know what those, sometimes what specific structures are going to look like in the future, but even just having like mediated spaces for conflict um, are really are integral. You know, I was in a really very wonderfully structured feminist group, and one of the things we did at the end was 
go around and people did kind of an evaluation, a check-in. So that was time for people to speak up about anything unresolved. Just having the space to for everyone to speak up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's huge. And I think that I think that there are ways that we can integrate values um, and ways that we can think about our communication with each other that, that can mitigate harm, right? Like thinking about how urgency in our work can harm our culture and can make, yeah, increases the risk of harm and the degree to which harm happens, right? So like if we find ways to... Um, to think about how to make our culture less urgent and less, um, yeah, like really less urgent, then maybe we will also mitigate harm. So it's it's like a, I think it's a lot of different components. What about the um, pretty common theme of jealousy? You're getting more media attention than me. Who do you think you are? I think like that is something that I think was really like, a huge part of the youth climate movement as a whole, um, especially in a, in a movement like with celebrity activists um, who emerged like very early on. And I would say that like, yeah, in Sunrise, I think we prioritize doing the work, not getting the media attention. And I would say that, yeah, in my interactions, that has not been a conflict. Um, and or like jealousy has not has not impeded our ability to work together as individuals um, or to like come together as a movement. And I think that that is like a fundamental dedication to a broader vision as opposed to like our own personal stake in it um, or stake in like self-promotion within that vision. Um, but I like, I'll say frankly that like working with other youth movements for change, that is certainly not the case. In that there is that kind of competition? Yeah, I think that that's, um, and I, I, I think that is a real direct result of teenagers who have become famous through the youth climate movement and who have, like, made it through the youth climate movement and become influencers. Um, but, like, frankly, are they doing the work by going to COP25? No, right? Like, that's not actually organizing on the ground or, like, doing Levi's campaigns is not organizing on the ground. Um, that, that is like, a, that was the first company that came to mind because I know they're doing like sustainable initiatives. I don't actually know if anyone has done that, but, um, right. Like those or even like being on MSNBC is not the epitome of, of the work. The epitome of the work is like having one-on-one -on -one conversations with folks in our community and like bringing them into the movement. And I think Sunrise does a really good job through a theory of change of orienting people towards that importance as opposed to the celebrity activism importance. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when we think of celebrity, we think of Greta Thunberg. And the, the interesting thing is that she doesn't really seek it or want it. So it's kind of an interesting phenomena that she's the star and doesn't especially... I would say, I think in the U.S. there are other stars like um yeah i like won't name names but i think that there are like yeah the, there are like folks who have started other youth climate orgs and movements um who certainly uh have become very famous as a result
Okay, so um, you're saying it's not really an issue in Sunrise because the focus is on doing the work on the grassroots level. Yeah, and I think that, yeah, I think fundamentally we we do not see success or even see put like a huge value on who gets media attention. Um, it's about what is actually being done. Yeah, well, that's logical, but often humans aren't. <laughs> um, you, you've kind of focused, because of your age, on organizing curriculum for secondary school students. So what, what kind of approach has you, have you found works there? And when you're building curriculum, what is it going to teach me if I'm a middle school student? What, what am I going to learn from your curriculum? Yeah, so I think that I'll answer the second question first. Um, we, when we built curriculum to support new organizers, we thought about getting them oriented towards Sunrise. Like, what is our theory of change? Like, what is people power, political power, the people's alignment? What do those things mean? And then it's like, what does it actually mean to be a mass protest movement or structure-based organizing movement um, or a merriment of both? Like, what are those tools and techniques and escalation and like, what is our history there? So I think that's like one big bucket. Another bucket is like, what does it take to like facilitate a good meeting? We're terrible at facilitating meetings naturally. Like, how do you keep people engaged? How do you actually like recruit people in a way that is outside of your social circle and is like gonna be equitable and reach the people that you want it to? How do you, um, how do you absorb people from a meeting? How do you, um, plan an action, right? Like all of these things that are so, or how do you do a one-on-one, -on -one, a huge part of organizing, right? All of these, like, I think, when I think of our curriculum, I think of it as like a merriment of skills and like a really hard conversations about history and about power and about um, theory, right? That like, contrary to popular belief, middle and high schoolers are more than ready to engage in in the same way that the rest of the movement is. We just have to make it accessible and make it applicable, right? Like if, if we're talking about um, experiences that are only gonna be accessible to a college student or beyond, then it makes sense that our training is not gonna like land or like sink in to middle and high schoolers. But if, if we're talking about the way that power interacts in our school systems, then like that's a really clear visual. So that's a lot of what we were thinking about and a lot of what we talked about. Um, in, in our previous interview, you said that, that high school students have to learn not to always have to ask for permission. There's an authority. How Explain that. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that it's huge for middle and high school students. And I'm like, I actually think that this is a societal issue. But I think specifically for middle and high school students, everything up until, up until the point that we begin organizing in our lives has been asked things that we've had to ask permission for, like even, even so much as like going to the bathroom in school, right? Um, I think I use the word that like students have like learned helplessness because of the environment that we have been put in. Mm. And so I think a huge initial part of our curriculum was like agitating folks, like actually like the way that we create change is not by asking permission from our principal to walk out. It's by saying like, like we're going to walk out whether you want us to or not. Um, and like accepting the consequences of that and saying that they are nothing um, in or maybe not as important as like the mission itself. And but I, I will say like more broadly speaking, 
I think that like we have a culture and a society that like disempowers the ordinary individual. And so I actually like think that everybody probably would benefit from real like agitation about power and what does it mean to seize power and take power and like it's okay to want power, right? And like yeah, what does it mean to like really have agency? Um, what I heard from a lot of people in the book is that part of the reason that girls are at the forefront of the climate movement is because high school boys are more afraid of being considered uncool or hugging, you know, being a tree hugger or a hippie were some of the words that people used. Um, so I wonder if you if you find gender differences in terms of willingness to be an activist for climate change in, in terms of boys, oh, I should be in a band in sports and that's how I'd be cool. Honestly, I don't know. I think like everybody, a lot, most people in Sunrise like have a very developed sense of self. So I'm like, maybe like, I think all, we all at the end of the day, like are, you know, like seeking approval in some ways and like have, you know, like, that's just, like, a human thing. I, I don't know. I'm not an expert. But I'm, like, there, we all have, like, natural desires to, like, be a part of the in-group and whatever it is. But I'm, like, I don't know. I think that, like, I guess I did work on, like, an all-female team. Um, but I, I don't see, like, huge gaps in gender in Sunrise in the slightest. I'm, like... Maybe, like, the men are more earnest than those that you would interact with in everyday life. I was joking about this um, with a friend. I was like, everybody is very earnest. And, like, certainly most high school boys are not earnest um, to, like, a scary degree. But I don't, I don't know. I just, I think maybe that's a culture in local communities more than it's a culture and, like, Sunrise is, like, a national organization, if that makes sense. Oh, like, yeah, absolutely. Our hub, well, our hub in Lexington is, like, very female and non-binary identifying. And, like, maybe it's because it was started by folks who identified as being female or, or non-binary. But maybe, yeah, maybe it really does play into it. I don't know. I really don't. Well, it, I mean, the fact is that there are many more women, young women involved in, in terms of every, every organization that I know of that's youth-led climate, many more women. So something is going on that keeps boys out. Who knows? Maybe it is, like, toxic masculinity and, like, internalized patriarchy. It, it certainly could and, and probably is. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think there's, there's more fear on boys' part of being um, ostracized or, oh, it's that old thing that it's okay for a girl to be a tomboy, but it's not okay for a boy to be a sissy. So there's more pressure on boys to conform and prove their masculinity. And being a tree hugger might make their masculinity suspect. I, I could certainly see that as the reality. I don't know that I've like ever had it an interaction that confirmed that, um, per se, you know, I mean, like nothing specific is coming to mind, but certainly I do think, yeah, I think to a degree it, the ways, I also think that like the ways in which 
sometimes people are socialized into becoming an activist in high school um, are like, yeah, they skew like very feminine in many ways. Like I think, yeah, I just like when we think about like clubs or leadership or extracurricular activities in that way, um, or even like social media usage and like the way that it is used, those could all be contributing factors. So uh, it's okay for women, young women to be caring and not so okay for boys to be caring. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm thinking of, I interviewed Halal in Turkey and she said in their 20s, there are more men, young men that are involved. So there's something about the pressure in high school years to really prove your masculinity or whatever and it eases as they get older yeah and I mean I do think like when we think about who has historically led the left right it has unfortunately or for what or maybe like not maybe no no judgment attached it has historically been men you know what I mean I'm like even I just watched like the Frida Kahlo movie for the first time like even when we think about like who sat at the table drinking tequila and talking about communism it was like ultimately Diego Rivera not Frida and so it's you know like what it what does that say um uh, what about another issue that comes up a lot is burnout um with school work and working outside the home for many teens in the U.S. and U.K. um how how do you teach people in your curriculum to do self-help it's called yeah, you know, I think that ideally we are supporting people to build hubs that don't, I don't think are immune to people's burnout, but create a community where people can ask for help and support in a way that allows them to st step back before burnout really hits or, or when it does and like take space and time as needed. And I don't think we're completely successful at that in any way. And, and young people do get burned out. And that's like also a direct result of the educational system and like every, at every single level, right? Um, but, I, but I also think that there, yeah, I think that we really intentionally try to, to create communities of support that will at least mitigate the, the potential for burnout. And does support mean that it's permissive to talk about how you feel or what kind of support is actually available? So I think that that varies from hub to hub. I think like certainly having deep relationships is a huge, is a huge part of it. Um, and yeah, I, I think like having deep relationships, having mentorship, having um having that within a hub is huge um and and also like i think sometimes for instance having like oh i just got a poor connection notification can you hear me yeah fine okay um yeah i think that like also like having teams of folks who are doing something as opposed to one one person holding everything uh, can really help. And 
I think that there, yeah, I don't think that there's like one structure, quote unquote, that people employ, but it is a combination of like having, um, yeah, like having supportive relationships that allow someone to step back and like having, having like structures within hubs that allow people to like take on, to take on work as they, as they can and, and are able to. Is it built in to have time to say, how are you feeling? What's up with you as a person? What? No, no. 